Mindfulness Mode 362. A lot of the time, the, the journey is nothing ever like you'd expect it to be. Reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness right here on Mindfulness Mode with me, your host and Mindfulness Life Coach, Bruce Langford. Thanks for joining, everybody. Great to have you with us. I'm excited to tell you today that there is a summit coming up that I think you'll really enjoy. I'm going to be featured along with more than 20 other experts on topics of mindfulness and related topics. We'll be discussing simple techniques to help you find calm, clarity, and focus. This event is put together by my friend Pompey Strader-Vidal. She's a Zen sensei and she is amazing. You'll remember that she's been a featured guest on Mindfulness Mode on episode 222. To take in this summit, you don't need a lot of extra time in your day or extensive yoga knowledge. You will find you learn some surprising, simple and relaxing strategies that will help you in your life. This free summit includes two 30-minute interviews a day over an 11-day period. I'll be discussing my own techniques and tips along with the 22 other experts. Registration is free and available at this link. For a limited time, go to mindfulnessmode.com slash RAB2018. And the RAB stands for Relax and Breathe. And now time to sit back, relax, and enjoy today's interview. Hey, Mindful Tribe, I have a fascinating man with me today. I have Deepak Shukla with me today. Hey, Deepak, are you in mindfulness mode? I'm definitely getting that way. Uh, absolutely, Bruce. It's uh, it's a real pleasure to be here with your tribe. Well, it's a pleasure to have you with us, Deepak. Deepak Shukla is a marathon runner, Ironman, and SEO agency owner. He's running over 25 marathons and was nominated for Young Entrepreneur of the Year. When he's not working, you'll find Deepak getting tattoos, hanging out with his cat Jenny, or eating calzone. Or you may notice that he's recording a a podcast episode because his podcast is called Life, Love, and Entrepreneurship. So welcome to the show, Deepak. What does mindfulness mean to you and in your life? Uh, thank you for the wonderful <laughs> introduction, first of all, Bruce. <laughs> um, uh, uh, for me, um, mindfulness has become a lot about a sense of kind of singularity. I, 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 I felt the foremost expression of it, certainly when I was uh, out on runs, particularly ultramarathon runs, because you go on trail running. It's a little bit different to, let's say, the traditional marathon in that you, you're, you're well, you're with the, the marathon event of, itself, of course, you're with an audience, but um, certainly when you get out for training runs, you are alone. However, you, your mind, I mean, uh, my, my mind drifts and I kind of thoughts come and thoughts go. But when you're d- trail running and you're doing, for example, a, a technical descent down a hill and it's either kind of focus on what's in front of you or tumble down the hill, um, I experience a real sense of... I, I don't know if you call it the flow state, but certainly then in those moments when I feel literally at one with my environment and it feels that there's no kind of start or end to my body, that's when I feel like I experience mindfulness at its at its height, for me certainly anyway. 
Well, I love that. At one with my environment, and we can all move toward that goal, whatever our environment is. So I really like that you said that. But it sounds like then that for you, mindfulness has a lot to do with running because that's such a big part of your life then. Is that true? Yeah, uh, absolutely. It would, uh, it, it, it's, um, running has been a huge part of my life. Um, kind of the, the, the endurance aspect of it is, has particularly been something that for me has become very calming. And, and, and certainly it came out as an offshoot of when I was younger myself, uh, around I think 20, well, 24, 25, I began to get into therapy. And um, at that time, I mentioned to the therapist that you know running uh, at least a little bit seemed to calm me. And she said something that was so simple that has gone on to become so powerful, which was, well, okay, that's not a negative addiction. That's pretty positive. Do, do more of that. And there's a direct parallel between me being in therapy beginning to get on the marathon route and me improving in other spaces of my life life significantly because it brought an overall calm to many of the other things that I did. Right. And when did you start running? Did you run as a child, Deepak? I ran, I, I, yeah, I began to run probably when I was uh, not that early, really, maybe 14, 15. I used to go running with a friend of mine and I still distinctly recall um, Thomas, Thomas Perryman, us running on, um, Christmas Day, <laughs> because his family weren't uh, hugely bothered or, or interested by Christmas. So we went out to um, Black Forest, it's called, just near where I grew up, near my family home. And he'd have his father, um, who would kind of scream at us as a means of pushing us harder along the route that we took. So yeah, it began when I was 14. Um, although the marathons or the endurance aspect to it, because at that time, the furthest I'd run maybe was four or five kilometers, um, the, the endurance aspect began when I was 22, I think. So there was a significant gap between that and then actually going out to do endurance. Tell me about your first marathon run. How long did it take you to prepare for it? And what was it like? Yeah, yeah, amazing question. Um, my first marathon run was in around 2009, 2010, I think, Chicago. Uh, I've got it tattooed on my arm, actually, uh, the first 10 places I ran in, in the end. And Chicago was where my story began. The reason that I picked Chicago at that time was because um, it was just a wild place to do a first marathon, really, for someone who, of course, you know, growing up in London, I, there's the London Marathon. <laughs> it's it's on my doorstep, right? Um, yeah. Uh, but, but, but the act of booking the flight the act of booking, you know, like a, it wouldn't have been an Airbnb at that time. It would have been like maybe like a hotel or something. Yeah. Um, and, and just all the logistics that surround it, it, it really um, incentivized me to get outside of my comfort zone in respect of doing the training that was necessary. And, and I hadn't, it wasn't something that I'd necessarily planned out my training routine. I, I was actually um, due to run that marathon straight after pretty much coming back from backpacking through South America. Oh. So I still, I, yeah, so I still have photos of um, me training, running down railroads in Buenos Aires when I was in Argentina, or I think it was in La Paz. Um, I stayed at an animal sanctuary for a week, La Senda Verde, and that, that would be kind of on, on, the, on a mountainside. And I'd spend a lot of time running in kind of my, and, and they were like plimsolls. They weren't even running trainers. I could look up my old blog and actually find them. But I had no real sense of 
the equipment, like, like, like none of the equipment or, or the, like the diet or the nutrition. It was like, right, Deepak, go out of your door and, and kind of just run until maybe it hurts a little bit or just try running right. for an hour or two hours and see what happens. So was that your first time to the United States when you went to Chicago? Yeah, was exactly. it? And, yeah, and was, what was that like, you know, landing in Chicago and experiencing a yeah, different culture? Absolutely. Oh, it was incredible. I mean, it was, uh, I understood why they called it the Windy City, number yes. one, when we did our run. Um, number two, I, I really didn't appreciate um, lot, lots of things like Chicago deep, town, deep, town, um, deep Pan Pizza, I think was the first time that I had the famous pizza there. That was yeah. brilliant. Number three, um, the, the actual experience of running the marathon itself, um, you know, there's just things that you learn that you didn't really realize until you get into the run that the first, the first hour is the most chaotic because it's where everyone kind of sets out. Um, everyone starts with like a, an anorak or a hoodie and then you see just tons of shedding of clothing because um, everybody like warms up and I didn't really even know that you threw away your clothing. So I was sitting there shivering in my t-shirt to begin with being like, wow, I'm really, I'm really cold to, um, you know, if you, if you're drinking from a water bottle, you, you, it's, it's really bad form to just drop it on the floor because you might trip up someone running immediately behind you. Right. And I saw lots of people throwing water bottles to the side, but I just kind of dropped mine on the floor and I think a guy behind me almost tripped up and I was like, Oh gosh. <laughs> so there's, there's, all, there's all these little things yeah. that you learn, but also you get, a great sense of it's like you know it's it's a body of people all moving towards one goal and and after you get out of the kind of furore or the hubbub of the, the 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 crowded first hour when you've got people on on the sidelines it it really again it becomes quite peaceful you're all kind of journeying the noise quietens and it's 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 everybody running in almost a kind of a singular direction well definitely in a singular direction yeah. of course towards one goal the goal is to finish the goal and and you, you hear the pitter patter of steps you hear breathing you hear the occasional rustling of someone taking out a gel pack um you, you hear the occasional crowd calls but you really kind of zone in on on getting you know getting to the, the finish line or you know the next 18 miles the next 12 miles after you've done the first 10 12 um and yeah, I, the reason that I've done over 20 now is it's, it's that, that, that feeling is hugely addictive. Right. And, it sounds and, like you can't get enough of it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and there's a kind of um, a peacefulness that you feel that pain brings, I think. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it's, what's the right way to describe this pain? You know, it's, it's a pain that you seek. It's not, it's, 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 um, you know, the, probably because of the chemical effect also the releasing of you know uh, of endorphins to master pain and then you know serotonin and all, all of these kinds of floods of chemicals that rush through you and i guess that's why they refer to it as the runner's high <laughs> right exactly were you by yourself in chicago or did you have anybody you know cheering you on there at that time i went out with my partner at the time um and this was back in this was 2000 so this was like nine years ago but uh -huh. during the event itself um there was a guy called daryl um who, who we, we stayed with um so we might have couch surfed i think actually in the end come right. to think of it um and he had already run the chicago marathon and he was actually with me for the last um 
four or five miles of the run because he'd already run it before. And it was going through, I think, Chinatown or something that he kind of snuck out and uh, ran with me for the last five miles. And, and I'll always recall um, not realizing about, you know, salts and not only staying hydrated, but making sure that you have, you know, like nutritional uh, sports drinks, right, for the, for, the, for the salt and sugar that you lose, that I ended up finishing the event with huge cramp. And I'll always remember, it was really my first time. I remember maybe a nurse coming over to me and saying, sir, do you need medical assistance? Right. Uh, <laughs> because I was cramping up so much I could barely walk. And it was like, he's like, dude, you need some salts. You got you to gotta get some, because I'd just been drinking water the whole way through and uh, you, you can't get to that. So it, it was like a cacophony of like mis, <laughs> mis, missteps and like doing everything wrong. And um, but, but it's... It's just, uh, you know, as you can as you can hear me talk about it, you know, it feels quite kind of romantic looking back on it and thinking about, you know, my feelings of that first event and, and, and all of those new things, you know, knowing that, you know, I got there, I did it, you know, it got and done. And isn't that a little bit like our journey as an entrepreneur? I mean, you were nominated as the entrepreneur of the year, the young entrepreneur of the year. How old you were you when that happened and how did it come about? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, it's, um... It, it's weird. So that came about. So I'm 32 right now. Um, in in the last year and a half of running my agency, we've been nominated for two awards. For our, we've won two awards. The agency's won two awards for search engine optimization. We we were won by there's a publishing newspaper that looks at awards here in the UK. And then the other award that we won won was we were nominated. Well, we we got a top 20 search award rather. So we were ranked number 19 of around two and a half thousand agencies for the space of SEO by Agency Spotter. They're a, they're a directory online that lists and ranks agencies and people can hire from them. Um, and then the young, um, the young British um, entrepreneur of the year came from, uh, so I'm, I'm, 30, I'm 32 and this came like last year when I was 31. Um, and it focuses specifically on the British Asian community, which is, um, again, you know, uh, this was not something that I actually nominate. I don't have anyone in house that goes out and applies for awards. So I was a bit mystified when I got an email saying, Hey, we've been trying to contact you for about a week and a half. You've been nominated for an award. And I was like, oh, okay, what award awards that then there's oceanic consulting, this, 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 this firm here in the UK that's been running it for about four or five years. And, uh, I guess, you know, 31 isn't particularly young, but maybe it is on the younger side amongst the British Indian community. I think, which is which is perhaps with that caveat that, that that it then accounts for. Okay, well, that's not really that young in the wider odds. But you know, I I um I um I know that um you know this last um this last two years really, it's been a wild ride for me. I, I think I, I did an application to the British Special Forces before I was getting involved into the SEO side um, as a kind of continuation of you know what else could I do in the space of endurance? I, I qualified as a basically trained British soldier, um, ultimately withdrew my application to the special forces um, and was kind of thinking about my next steps. And that's where the SEO agency came in. And, you know, I, if, 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 we had, if I'd have been on your podcast in, well, the Oct October 2016, so just coming up to two years, I would have been back at my mum's place, no money, um, had an idea that I wanted to do something in marketing, trying to figure things out. My parents and even my wider family trying to figure out what I was trying to figure out because they're like, you know, what are you doing or where is this going? And uh, 
as you rightly said, that experience of the the marathon and the training and the series of kind of missteps and you know getting a sense that okay, there's a, there, that there is a greater goal here, and and a lot of the time the the journey is nothing ever like you'd expect it to be. Right, exactly. Now, was SEO your first uh, venture into being an entrepreneur, or did you do other things before that? Um, good question. I so no, my first venture truly, I presume, was um, I mean, my first ever venture. If I'm being honest, probably was like maybe sixteen, seventeen, where I wanted to be a musician. So then I joined a, a, a rap group, and we'd sell our rap CDs. Uh, well, I say we. I sold my rap CDs. That was. Uh, not the wider group CDs, but I still remember there's a shopping center called Westfields in London. Um, it, it was at the time it was built like Europe's largest shopping center. And I still recall, I was maybe 20. I mean, the, we, we, we fast forward a little bit, but I remember ultimately selling CDs in the actual shopping center and very quickly realizing that my best customer was like a mother with children uh, like young children in a pram. So I was like, oh, wow, I did not expect that to happen. So right. I kind of, I just, I just went with it. And within like a one day period, literally, I went from maybe wearing a fitted hat, wearing jeans, uh, like, you know, baggy jeans to putting on a shirt, getting rid of the hat and looking a lot, um, perhaps more approachable. <laughs> and then did you sell more? Yeah, exactly. Did literally. I, I, I sold more. I, I dropped perhaps any, I, I adjusted to my audience, I guess, if I will. And I thought, well, these are my buyers. Let's, let's, let's run with that. And then I had to get approached by um, security um, because uh, you're not really, well, not, not yet. You know, you need a license to, you're just not meant to sell your own CDs inside a shopping center. You'll no. see guys outside of train stations. I'm sure you've, you know, outside of a metro, outside of wherever it might be, like on the right. high street. But you don't sell on kind of company premises. So then what I would do at that time, because I was with like a friend, I think, I remember that anytime we, we realized that if we carried a clipboard around, they'd assume that we were students like taking some marketing kind of questionnaire because I'd ask everybody for their email. And that was a really good way to kind of ward them off for a little bit longer. <laughs> and and, <laughs> and then when, um, when they did come, we'd kind of play a little bit ignorant and kind of move to, and the shopping center, as I said, was, Europe's big was big enough that you could go to another side of the shopping center and not see the same dude for like about a good two or three hours before maybe someone realized. And uh, did that take that, a lot of courage to do that? Because that's really funny. <laughs> oh my god, that took like uh, it took a it took it took, it took a big amount of cojones. I'll say it, it was it was you know that experience is 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 harder than a lot of the things that I do today. I think yes. when it comes to you know, like, I don't know, embarrassment or fear of failure or, or any of that kind of stuff. Because it would also be that, you know, that whole thing, for example, you know, I'm British Indian, as I was, as, 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 as I was saying. And um, if you go and approach, for example, a group of guys who look like rappers themselves, the perception of someone who's British Indian who's rapping is also something else you've got to deal with. So yes. all of these variations of, of like kind of personalities and people and uh, I've, I quickly recognized that, you know, I, I had to, I had to leave my feelings at the door and approach bloody everybody because some of the time it was also like a numbers game. And this is, this is, yeah. this has been what's become really interesting. I think as I've developed things later, because those things I learned in that shopping center, like the throughput, when I say that I refer to the fact that I'd approach 20 people within an hour, maybe more 
but you learn so much in literally a seven second engagement with number one, should you approach someone whilst they're, for example, on the phone? Number two, do they have their head down or have their head up? Number three, are they with the group? Number four, if they are with the group, then do you approach on the side or do you stand in front of them? Number six, how do you adapt your pitch based upon their initial expression? Do they seem open? Do they seem closed? Number seven, you know, what about the logistics of letting other people pass whilst you're standing there because you want to move them to sale. So if they're standing in the middle of the aisle, they may like your music, but may be uncomfortable by being in other people's way. So therefore they end up not buying. So all of those things have become hugely instrumental over time as I've gone up the ladder, if you will, of like business conversations. That was like your own university degree in marketing <laughs> that you carried out. <laughs> that is so funny. Uh, absolutely, Bruce, because people be like, what can you learn from that? I'd be like, oh my God, go and do it for like a week and yeah. you'll discover there's innumerable variations that, you know, can, because because then it comes down to the, well, are they sold on you? Are they sold on your product? Are they sold on your sales pitch? Are they sold on... You know, how do you follow up? And or, and and you realize that, you know, the the, 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 the the scale at which you do business micro, but the conversations fundamentally don't change that much. Right, right. I interviewed Tyler Basu and he's from Vancouver and he went into a year of door-to-door -door marketing. And wow. he said he learned so much from that experience and it's very much like what you're describing. Now, did you already have tattoos when you did that? I want to know, I want to know your journey with your tattoos because this is pretty fast. <laughs> Fascinating. Absolutely. Um, so um, I have, um, yeah, I have my entire top torso minus my forearm covered. So the entirety of my chest and it, I forget what I look like sometimes because, um, you know, I, I, you know, people think that I'm a drug dealer. Like uh, a lot of the time <laughs> they think that, you know, and I've gone from looking like a British Indian to maybe looking people like you look like you're in a cartel or something because every day sometimes where I go for a run and it's super hot and towards the end of the run I'll take my t-shirt off because I'm just dripping with sweat I haven't thought about it I've taken a black t-shirt out I'm I'm brown as it is you double up and you get really sweaty and then you know also there's, there's a swimming pool experiences where people either stop and stare or or, or or move stare but get out of the way and I'm like I'm a, I'm a really nice guy, but I forget about how I look versus, you know, what I portray. And do many people talk to you about that and say, hey, those tattoos are really yeah. cool. Tell me about it. A lot of people do. Yeah. So I'll have my um, my partner's family who'll be like, oh, my God, you've got all these tattoos. And they, 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 that was always an adjustment because I, I got them quite aggressively. Um, and that's been the same kind of conversation that I've had with like the wider members of my family. They're like, why have you got so many tattoos? So there's there's a disparity between like perhaps you know uh, my, my my parents versus but that everybody of course accepts them. And my journey to come back to your question that began when I was 18 years old with um, a chap called Michael. We were sitting in a bar in Chiang Mai in northern Thailand, and uh, it, this was part of a trip when I went backpacking. And we were just sitting, having some drinks, ready to go trekking the day after. Um, and we had um, a bet that if he got his, if I got a tattoo, he would get his lip pierced, just uh, his bottom lip pierced. And we were drinking, as I said. And as irony would have it, the chap literally across from me 
had um, it was just this dude sitting, and he was he he had a he was holding his beer mug, and as you clamp your hand around a beer mug, of course, he had a scorpion tattoo with the pincers going around his hands. And I was in a bar, and I was drinking, and I was like, "This looks so damn cool." Yes. And we'd just been talking about tattoos, and oh. there was this guy with his tank top. He looked like a martial arts martial arts expert from like you know a far eastern movie ponytail kind of slick hair drinking his beer quietly just a little bit of a beard on his upper top lip and i was like hey man cool tattoo and he's like thank you dude i'm a tattoo artist and then my my friend michael just started tapping my shoulder going oh 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 she gotta do it (laughs) so as it turned out he had his um tattoo parlor literally next door so he, he that was his regular spot he'd go next door after the kind of end of his day because it was around 6 6 30 p.m and he i was like oh he was like i, I, I this is i was 18 right so it was talking 14 years ago right within 10 minutes i was basically in his tattoo parlor and um i remember scribbling out a picture saying can he's like what do you want and i was like oh can you can you do this I gave him the picture. He looked at it. He looked at me. He's like, let me, let me draw it again for you because it was literally just a really bad scroll. So, um, I I ended up getting my first tattoo on my right shoulder blade. And I always remember it was quite, you know, it's Northern Thailand. It's pretty warm. And I thought, I really want everybody to see how cool I am because I've got this awesome tattoo on my, you know, upper right shoulder blade. So I had a jumper on just kind of like I do now. And I remember asking him to cut a hole with his pair of scissors around where I got the tattoo. (laughs) I was like, I want everyone to see it. And that seemed like the sensible thing to do then. (laughs) So I said, I'm going, um, I'm going trekking by the way tomorrow to into the jungle. So what do I do? He said, I'll just put some cling film on it with some Vaseline and you'll be fine. Off you go. So, um, I, 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 I still remember, I, I, you know, and your blood thins when you drink, I was a bit quite bloody putting the, um, jumper back on walking down the high the 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 strip of bars that were there either side being mighty proud might been like dude so cool and and you know a a guy coming over to me another holiday maker tapping me on the shoulder but like hey dude and i was like oh this is going to be so cool i'm going to have that moment he looks at me he's like you've got a hole on your t-shirt and it looks really weird (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I was like, damn. <laughs> so, um, you know, that, that, that journey um, really segued into um, an addiction that followed. Not that different from marathons, yeah. I think. Um, and there's, there's, I think there's a definite connection with, um, like, uh, I think that anyone um, who does any level of endurance, endurance sports and, and getting, you know, I'd sit and have six to eight hour tattoo sessions as time grew over the years. And, oh, so um, you were addicted to tattoos then? Yeah, yeah, that was where it started. I started lightly, um, and and it was really when I got to about twenty three. At the same time that I began the marathon running, that there was also uh, a steep incline into the level of tattoos that I got between the ages of eighteen and twenty three. I, I got a tattoo here and there, um, but then it increased. And and you know what? It's um, it's strange, Bruce, because um, I think that you know. A lot of the tattoos that I have carry meaning in that they, 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 they it's a symbol that represents something. Right. But but the deepest meaning I think that the tattoos have given me 
is, is the experience of actually getting them and that feeling of singularity again where it drowns out the noise. Are you still addicted to that feeling? Yeah, definitely. I think the way that I gain access to that feeling has, has, has chopped and changed over the years. But um, seeking out that kind of painful, if, if, if it, you know, it, it'd be more accurate to call it maybe a growth experience. I'm, I'm not quite sure if pain's the right kind of, you know, descriptor or synonym of it, but I definitely am still um, addicted to it. And that also is why, you know, there was that track from marathons to ultra marathons to iron men's doing special forces applications right. to the longer tattoo days and, um, you know, therapy and, and those things were a core component of my life through my kind of mid to mid to late twenties. Right. Now, speaking of pain, were you ever bullied? I always ask a question about this and you know, if mindfulness would have helped you through that, do you have a story? Uh, yeah, no, I do. Uh, I was bullied. Um, going into, so I was 11 years old in the UK education system. You go into secondary school, they call it. So it's basically when you go from being six to 11, you're in kind of one school with the six to 11 year olds. And then you move to, from there to the 11 to 16 year olds or 18 year olds, depending. So it's kind of, it's a whole new playground. Right. And the area in which we grew up, um, a place called West Drayton, which is a suburb in the west of London, um, is, 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 is a very, um, it, it's a white working class community. And I was one of very few British Indian kids that were in that school. Um, and in that, in combination with a registration system that that school had to overhaul because the amount of bullying that it opened students up to was that typically during any kind of registration, you know, of any kind of any class anywhere, you either sat with people that are in your same kind of class or at your same level, but you wouldn't put, you know, a, a, a commanding officer with a new recruit in the right. same class. Right. My school was different in that they put the 11 year olds with the 16 year olds, oh. like all the way through the registration. And in that, in that registration, there were four brothers, you know, 11, 12, 14 and 16. Okay. And really it just happened that, you know, they, they took a, I, I don't know if you call a liking to me, um, but, but, you know, it just involved really, you know, really horrible kind of tense registration experiences because I was an easy target. I was there kind of by myself and, uh, you know, they do the play fighting, but really actually they punch you quite hard. And then if you try and fight back a little bit, then one of the other brothers will kind of push you. And, um, you know, I think that that's something that kind of went on like for the best part of that year. Yeah. It was the whole, I mean, I eventually moved school. I moved after two and a half years. Um, so by the time I was 13 and a half, 14, I think I, I always recall that as I just told you, I would, once or twice try to kind of fight back if you will and i did again when i was about 13 and a half and one of the brothers kind of just struck me in the face i, I remember falling over then kind of it was at lunchtime right. just kind of walking away and and trying to just do my best to hold back from from crying i think and yeah. and you know and i also bullied as well in parallel it was it was weird i i i saw other people's fun I, mean, I look back on it in hindsight and you, you know, it's difficult for me to talk about because I'm kind of ashamed of it. But I mean, it's the reality of what happened that there was another a kid, a uh, Hungarian migrant, I think. Yes. Zolfika was his first name, I think. And, and, you know, he was 
from a migrant family, just as I was, but he was the first generation migrant. I was, you know, I'm second generation, of course, I'm born and raised here in, in London. Yes. And I, I just always remember kind of verbally taunting him and making references to uh, just silly comments about, you know, like his mom and people would laugh and that would make me feel better. And then I, and I just remember being pulled out of class once and being told that, you know, um, Zolfika came to us crying because, and he never said it, you know, and, um, and, and that was a hugely leveling experience for me to order that to be happening all at the same time. It was, yes. it was really, really quite odd. So, um, emotionally things were very messy yeah. at, at, at that time. Um, so yes, Bruce, I, um, it, it's, it's, it's been a, it's been a strange upbringing and I, I definitely say that, you know, my, my, my twenties were, well, all of it was very formative and, uh, there's insights that you're going to share with me about the connection that I probably haven't seen yet. Right, right. Well, it's it's uh, interesting you share that, and thank you for being so vulnerable because that's not easy stuff to talk about, I'm sure. But so often when someone is being bullied, especially at that age, they end up bullying other people because they hardly know where else to put their energy, and that just happens. And uh, so looking back, I'm sure it's it's painful. But uh, you've moved on to a new place and you've done incredible things. I want to move on by asking you five quick answer questions, Deepak. The first one is, who is one person who has influenced mindfulness in your life? Of late, um, it's been um, Dave Goggins. Dave Goggins um, recently in the last year or so, um, he's a former U.S. Navy SEAL and considered to be a very well-respected or one of the world's best endurance athletes. And he has this concept um, that he calls of building calluses on your brain. Okay. Um, and and the, the concept involves around, uh, the concept ultimately centers around just a continual exposure to, 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 to painful experiences and how that hardens you for, for anything else that you want to do kind of outside of, outside of that experience itself. That, 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 that is hugely spoken to me and, and, has kind of helped, I think, give me give me a language or a, a, a reasoning for why I felt that these painful experiences, the marathons and the tattoos, helps me, I feel, operate a lot more powerfully in other spaces of my life. Deepak, how has mindfulness affected your emotions? I, I'm more aware of them. Almost like um, I can see them before they're coming or I can sense the triggers and becoming mindful of, of kind of what's happening and what my trigger point points are has allowed me to, to, to manage my negative emotions and process them a lot more effectively than I used to. Um, it's, it's been absolutely huge um, for me. And how has breathing been part of your mindfulness practice? It helps calm me. It really helps calm me. It's like resetting an emotional trigger. So um, examples of that and, you know, that's where I got a lot of practice doing some of these ultras you really have to reset your breathing when you look down and you see you've got a really technical route to run and it's 1 a.m. in the morning, the wind's blowing and you're scared as well. Not only are you breathing hard because you're tired because you're 14 hours into a run, you're also scared because it just looks really dangerous and, and there's that trigger that is activated through... And not only does it allow me to regulate my my body functions, if you will, my cardiovascular system, the it, it, 
it also allows me to to center myself and to really re regain my composure. Interesting. If you could recommend a book related to mindfulness, what would that be? I've read a book by um, it's, I think it's called Loving What Is. Yes. I, um, I forget the author, the name of the author. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a lady, um, something Kelly. I need to Google it. It, it, it really was something that, um, okay, it's by Byron Katie. Oh, yes. Yeah, Four Questions That Can Change Your Life. Yeah, um, that was a big book for me when I was um, going through kind of my emotional storm around 25, 26, and uh, it gave me a framework to to, to, to cope with emotions that I didn't really know how to manage. Right. I'll put all this in our show notes at mindfulnessmode.com. Do you have an app that you use to help you with your mindfulness at all? Um, yeah, I do. It's a, it's a really interesting one. Um, it's, it's an app that I use um, each day for um, when I want to center myself, and it's through doing 100 press-ups. So okay. it's an app that will, um, it, I think it's just called, there's many variations of it, but um, if you Google like one, uh, if you check up 100 push-ups on Android or iPhone, what, so, so what I like about it is it, it takes me out of what I'm doing in my day and it forces me to, to center myself and focus just on the task at hand. Because that task is hard, I can't help but block out everything else. And it's that act of what I call forcing mindfulness. And um, that has become really powerful for me because I can almost gain more control of that trigger. So when I know it's kind of go time in other spaces, I can become mindful of the task at hand and realize now's a good time to practice what I was forced to do with the press ups, which is block out the rest of the noise and, and kind of get the real work done. Right. Well, thanks for that. I'll, I'll put that in our show notes as well. And, uh, you know, it's been awesome talking with you. We haven't talked about meditation exactly. It sounds like running is your meditation. Do you do any form of sitting meditation at all, Deepak? Yeah, um, a little bit. I, um, I do. I do. Um, I, again, it's, oh, no, I do. Okay. So it's connected did um to any time i need to do something that i'm afraid of mm -hmm. um so what will traditionally happen in those moments and it relates very much to breathing so i'll close everything out and i know that it's a moment that i need to center myself because the fear speaks to me it develops its own voice and i feel that emotion coming up in my stomach i feel the butterflies coming i recognize it as something that i'm afraid of and i um in those moments and I try and I try and seek out those moments more and more often now, and it forces me to to to, to use breathing. Breathe, breathe, breathing is a big thing because it's where I've just had the most practice of meditation because of running, um, and it's e it's it's the easiest one for me to call upon in those moments where you know I need to create a membership course, I need to launch my first Facebook ad, or I need to go into a sales call and. There's a 20% space about Google Analytics tracking that I'm not quite familiar, competent with, or, or whatever it may be. I do take a moment to breathe, control the emotions, block out the noise, and trust yourself. And, 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 and that really is the process. Breathe, block out the emotions, compose yourself, and, and kind of move forward. And, and that's been really helpful for me. And that, that will actually happen a couple of times a week 
because there'll be something that I'm afraid of, as has happened when you're trying to grow a business really quickly, you know, new growth, new problems and all of the things that come with it. That's great advice. And your podcast is great. Life, love and entrepreneurship. It's really interesting. And, you know, it, it shows what an interesting person you are. How else can we reach out to you? How can we connect with you? Absolutely. Um, so if, if anybody wants to look me up, just just have a look at my stuff on, on YouTube. Have a look, of course. I mean, uh, folks, Bruce has done an excellent job of name dropping. Anywhere you want to find me, deepakshukla.com is probably the one place that you'll find everything. So I just really recommend that you go there. And there's, there's links that you can follow out to the podcast, the agency, me doing YouTube talks, whatever it might be, whatever takes your fancy. And it's Deepak Shukla. I'll spell it D-E-E-P-A-K and then last name S-H-U-K-L-A. So it's DeepakShukla.com. So check out Deepak and check out the podcast Life, Love and Entrepreneurship. And Deepak, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com and type the guest name or the episode number into the search bar. You can also go mindfulnessmode.com slash whatever episode number you like. Mindful Tribe, I mentioned at the top of the show about the Relax and Breathe Summit. This free summit includes two 30-minute interviews per day over an 11-day period. I'll be one of the speakers. We'll be focusing on calm, clarity, and focus to help you be more grounded in those ways. So you can sign up for the summit at mindfulnessmode.com slash R-A-B 2018. Hope to see you there. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.